Hello and welcome to The Anecdotalist. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and introducing himself for the very first time, my co-host, Jason McKinney. Hello, everybody. I am Jason. Thank you for joining us today for our very first episode. Jason and I will be leading you through an unsolved mystery. That is, the Wall Street bombing. Well, I'll be telling Jason what I know of this event here and now for the first time. And he'll be asking questions, clarifying things, and adding tidbits along the way. Since this is our first episode, I want to explain how we got here. Jason and I are lifelong friends, and as such, every endeavor I've ever taken or project I've worked on, I've bounced off of him. And that's no different here. I've always wanted to make a podcast that explored unsolved mysteries, extraterrestrial encounters, and the paranormal. I researched and recorded a full episode, and I sent it his way. And I listened to it and thought it was really interesting. Um, like most of Paul's um, stories, he does a lot of research, and he brings out a really good story. Um, the amount of information that he provides and the amount of detail that he can put into his stories is amazing. And it always sounds like a good book, and I love reading books. Um, this one, he when he first sent me this podcast, I thought it was amazing. Um, but it sounded a little bit more like a lecture than it did something that I think he wanted to be moment for entertainment slash um, informational. Yeah, and I realized that when I was telling Jason about a topic or story, my enthusiasm comes through. So we came up with what we think is the perfect format. I research topics, put together an outline, and I tell Jason the stories. And I help bring in structure uh, and then ask some questions that maybe you know, need to be asked. There are some things that most listeners might want us to um, hear more about. We've had to do a little extra legwork because another piece of this is where we live. We both grew up in Ohio, but now Jason lives in South Carolina. So we're recording these virtually. So please bear with us as we work through the growing pains of launching a podcast. So with all that said, Jason, are you ready? I am so ready. I am so excited to listen to the story and sit back while you do all the work. Okay, here we go. Wall Street, September 16th, 1920, 12 p.m. A horse-drawn wagon arrives across from J.P. Morgan & Co. Bank at 23 Wall Street. Its cargo? 100 pounds of dynamite and 500 pounds of cast iron sash weights. Its driver slips down the side street. One minute later, an explosion rocks the financial district. 40 dead, 143 severely wounded, and several hundred injured. Charred horse hooves lay at the base of Trinity Church. Its newly shod horseshoes still attached. At the time, the attack was the largest terror attack on U.S. soil. The U.S. Stock Exchange freezes trading just minutes after the explosion to avoid a panic. In the ensuing days after the attack, the Bureau of Investigations, the predecessor to the FBI, begins its investigation. But after running out of leads and persons of interest, the case runs cold. An Italian anarchist? A psychic tennis player? The Bolsheviks? Come with me as we explore what really happened at noon at the heart of the United States Financial District. psychic tennis player <laughs> oh you think it's a dude actually what's crazy about this story is the psychic tennis player kind of came out of nowhere as i was like doing all this research i'm like what what is this um which is fantastic because as much as i love like the the whole process of doing going through this like unsolved mysteries like we have ghost stories and and alien stuff and then like i'm doing this research on this unsolved mystery and i'm like sweet we also have some like psychic we have some otherworldly stuff to talk about <laughs> A psychic tennis player. I didn't even know tennis was a thing then. Oh my gosh, he he's a lawyer too. We'll get into that as well. Like he's all over the place. It's really it's really interesting. Um, so what, what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna run through a timeline of events. I want to get through like the early stuff first, and we'll go through kind of exactly what happened, um, and then we'll get into the, the like the post, like the investigation, and where things led to. 
with the timeline, the top searches on Google. So I actually Googled this too, which is funny. And the first things that popped up was Homeland Security and the FBI's websites. So the Homeland Security page has a, a timeline source. And I was like, oh, cool. I can just type in Wall Street bombing and pull some of that stuff up. I couldn't actually get it to pull up any information. So I just ended, ended up diving into a bunch of different sources across, you know, multiple different platforms. Um, so I could put together my own coherent timeline. And you know, one thing actually that's pretty interesting that I noticed was when you're working across so many sources, there's a lot of variance between sources. And so some of them actually put a lot more emphasis on different aspects of the story. So what I tried to do is make sure that I put together a timeline that kind of gave everything a little bit of um, space or some time to talk about. But it's funny because some sources spent like quite a bit of time talking about the Italian anarchists. And another story spent a lot more time discussing post-World War One anti-capitalist sentiment, which I thought was interesting. I wonder if um, these two groups might be part of the same crew or I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, that just kind of seems suspicious that all of a sudden, like it shows you all these pages for Homeland Security and FBI, but then you can't actually find any information on it. I actually meant that they did have information in those sites, just the timeline slider or doohickey they had on the website. Couldn't pull up data on the wall street bombing. I'm assuming there just wasn't enough information there. But whatever I did in their site, I just I just couldn't pull it up. So I had to make my own. I do want to talk about several things that happened, though, prior to the Wall Street bombing that led into the bombing when we talk about the timeline itself. So the tennis champion, Edwin P. Fisher, he was also a lawyer. Um, he had had several conversations with friends and strangers about an explosion that would take place on Wall Street sometime in, in mid-September. The groundskeeper at F Fisher's Tennis Club recalled uh, Fisher told them about some millionaires on Wall Street good, were going to get it, and they had what was coming to them. So weeks leading up to the attack, he actually sent some postcards to his friend who lives in New York to steer clear of Wall Street on September 16th. So Fisher claimed that he had psychic tips that were tipping him off to this attack. And, you know, the first rumblings of the Wall Street bombing were Fisher's psychic <laughs> tips that he was getting. And that was the earliest signs of something devastating was about to take place. Okay, so if this isn't like the most obvious, like, look, he sent out these cards saying that this is going to happen, and then all of a sudden it happens. I mean, it sounds like the psychic tennis player is our leading suspect. Couldn't make it as a lawyer. Let's go try to let's go try to bomb somebody and take some money. That's what was so. That's what's super interesting, and there actually is a motive that has to do with money here in a bit. We'll talk about, but it is really funny because. We'll get deeper into it here in a minute. This is just the timeline part, but we'll talk more about him here in a second. But then also, here's another big, another damning piece of evidence, right? So a little before the explosion on Wall Street, a mail carrier found some flyers that when pieced together read, remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you, American anarchist fighters. That's, that's really throwing it in a different direction. Yeah, so they it almost feels like the thing it's been claimed. But as we get through more of this, of course, there's a lot of moving pieces. So it could be the American anarchist fighters. We don't know. The flyers found just hours before the attack on Wall Street and Edwin Fisher's psychic recollection of the events. Weeks leading up to the event are just two pieces of this giant puzzle. As you'll see, some pieces tend to fit well into the narrative, but others don't. Uh, we'll continue to discuss the order of events, but I'll get back to both Fisher and the American anarchist fighters. So the day started off as any normal day of trading on Wall Street. JP Morgan Jr. was out of the country in Europe and at the time. And if you've seen pictures of New York from this era, typically what you saw was busy streets with pedestrians and little car traffic. You know, we've all seen the images of newsboys yelling on the street corners as pedestrians bustle through New York. So you could guess a bomb going off in the middle of the street during lunch hour could have such damaging effects. We know the attacker pulled up in his horse-drawn wagon at the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street across from the assay office and in front of the J.P. Morgan building, right as the lunch rush was getting underway. And so eyewitnesses of the account remember seeing the driver immediately getting down from his cart and disappearing into the crowd. And some sources actually say that uh, they saw the man rush down a side street. And, you know, of course, with, with any disaster, eyewitness recollections, they're always they always vary. Uh, from witness to witness. And, you know, this event was no different. 
The cart was parked, you know, directly across from the J.P. Morgan building where employees were sitting and mingling and going about the normal workday, including the chief clerk, William Joyce, and then Junius Morgan, who is the son of J.P. Morgan Jr. At 12.01, the car detonated, sending iron sash weights careening through the street. Some sources state curtains as high as 10 to 15 stories up went up in flames. Two blocks away, a trolley cart was knocked over, and, and President JFK's father, Joseph, was said to have been knocked off his feet by the concussive force of the blast. Oh, dang. So, I mean, this was a pretty big explosion. I mean, the fact that two blocks away, a trolley... I mean, a trolley is not hard to push over back then, I'm sure, just by the explosion. Well, it's crazy because... As I was like reading through, the, I mean, there's a ton of stuff online that you can read through. There's actually a ton of pictures too you can look at. Um, but like the the iron sash weights, that's a whole crazy another rabbit hole you can go down. But yeah, the trolley cart was two blocks away, and those things are heavy. They're made of like, I mean, back in, I mean, back then, 1920, I can't imagine how much a trolley cart weighed. But supposedly, it fell over tw- like two blocks away. That's another thing. Um, iron sash weights. I actually had to look this up. You have to. You have to explain what iron sash weights are for those who were born before, like two thousand. I don't think iron sash weights are a common thing. Maybe. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. You were. You and I both were born before two thousand. But I will explain it because I. I had to look it up too. The iron sash weights. They're actually like two to three pound rods that counterbalance the weight of like a sliding window. So if you imagine an old wooden window that slides up and down, the insides of the frame of the window had these two pound iron sash weights, basically, that would counterbalance the weight. So you pull the window up and the weights would would shift and they would hold the window in place. So they basically were just metal rods that, that held in pace. So think about these two to three pound metal rods all shoved into this um, basically a homemade bomb. And they, those all went flying through the street when the bomb goes off. Oh my gosh. The amount of damage that could do. That's insane. Yeah. So a witness told the New York Sun, quote, I saw the explosion, a column of smoke shoot up into the air, and then saw the people dropping all around me, some of them with their clothing on fire. So a layer of glass basically covered the street, and many of the injuries sustained that day were from falling glass. And multiple sources talk about the amount of glass that was left in the street. You can actually see pictures online. If you if you Google the Wall Street bombing glass, there's pictures of these guys with these giant brooms sweeping the glass into the street because there's just so much of it. Can you imagine, though? I mean, they said that the, the flames were 10 to 15 stories high. I mean, there's no doubt the glass is all 10, 15 stories high on a building of all that glass. Like, going oh, down. yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. Well, the, yeah, the, the curtains on the windows, 10 to 15 stories high, were on fire. So you imagine the concussive force of the blast blowing out these windows, but then also the, the, the rods going through the windows, what that, what that would do. So there was a reporter, George Weston, um, who wrote that bodies, most of them silent and death, lay nearby. As I gazed in horror at the sight, one of these forms, half naked and seared with burns, started to rise. It struggled then toppled over and fell lifeless into the gutter. So there's like a ton of stuff. Like the, I mean, that quote specifically, it was from a reporter. So who knows, but there's a ton of quotes and things you can read online, that type of stuff together. I mean, that's a crazy image. Imagine that. Imagine seeing a burned, like seared body trying to stand and falling. And you were standing right next to them right before that. It's just kind of crazy. That is, that's insane, man amount of damage psychological damage from everybody yeah it's not great so so the investigators put together a picture um and basically what they put together was there was 100 pounds of tnt 500 pounds of iron cast sash weights and uh william joyce actually so the chief clerk of jp morgan he's 24 years old he was um at the bank of course working and he was killed instantly during the blast. So there's like, I, I mean, I read multiple sources that said one of these sash weights hit him like right in the, the throat or the head, but he was basically decapitated is what the sources said, which is, which is pretty bad. I mean, he's 24 and just like, it's over. He's working and then all of a sudden it's over. So this guy is sitting at the desk inside of the bank or inside of, inside of the building, sitting at the desk. 
and a rod comes shooting through the window and decapitates this guy. I mean, that's that's pretty insane. I mean, can you imagine how many more deaths there were inside of that building alone? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was about forty deaths, and we'll get into like how how that all shook out. But yeah, a lot of people died pretty quickly, pretty instantly. So actually, online you can find pictures of the aftermath, and there's not a whole lot of like crazy stuff online, but. I would be careful because there are human remains that you can see pictures of. They're mostly covered up, um, but you're not going to see anything too, too jarring. But there's also images of what the damage looks like today even. And so some pictures have pot marks in the sides of the nearby buildings. There wasn't a whole lot of structural damage, so they didn't have a lot of repairing to do. So they just kind of left everything as it was. So you can see the damage from the explosion today if you were to go to New York. So the initial blast actually killed 30 people and maimed or injured at least 300. And some sources state 10 additional people succumbed to their wounds, bringing the official death toll to 40. So the FBI's blurb on the case kind of leaves that detail out. just talks about the 30. But there are multiple sources online that had varying death tolls from 30 up to 37, 38, 39. And then some sources state an additional 10 over that 30 that were killed during the blast. So I just, for all intents and purposes, just kind of put 40 as a, a total whole number for us. Um, but it is safe to say that the life, the loss of life was immense. And at the time, it was the single largest death toll to happen on American soil from a terrorist attack. Yeah, this is insane. I was actually looking it up and I didn't notice the same thing. Like, yeah, actually, one, one of them just said a score of people passed. Like, a score of people died and then 200 injured. Yeah, it's crazy. Wait, how many is a score? I don't know. 40? It's, I didn't know if a score was actually a number. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, Abraham Lincoln, four score. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess it would be around 40. Or 30, depending on how. What a, what an interesting source that you found that they use the word score for like a death toll. That's what I said. Um, score. Let's see. It, says, it just says score die to 100 hurt in Wall Street. Interesting. That's cool. That's like an interesting, like a unique way to say it. Of the people that did die that day, those killed, most were brokers, clerics, and messengers, and then stenographers. And most of those people were were young. The most notable of those killed, of course, was Chief Clerk William Joyce, who was 24. But then also just as notable, Junius Morgan was injured in the blast. He didn't die, but he was injured. He was the son of J.P. Morgan Jr., it was determined that the bomb was set using a timer. Robert W. Wood, an American physicist and an inventor who was the pioneer of infrared and ultraviolet light photography, was tasked with reconstructing the explosive. He was able to reconstruct the fuse mechanism and timer, which consisted of commonly available components. And again, this led the investigators to a cold end. They figured out what the mechanism looked like and how it operated, but it led them nowhere. That's kind of interesting because I feel like back then, being able to create a bomb like this kind of sophisticated bomb would be like the equivalence of us like like you and me being able to create i mean i i I couldn't create a bomb you know i know that you could probably use tnt but like i couldn't tell you how to do it with a timer or anything of course we have amazon now but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think we could figure it out but they didn't have that back then you know so i mean people with this kind of knowledge i feel like would not would not be that common. So that's that's a great observation because we're gonna get we're gonna get deeper here in a minute, and there are some people that might actually know how to make bombs. So we'll get talk about that here in a second. Understandably, sifting through the carnage to help the injured was the number one priority of the people that began helping. Uh, there was a notable hero from the attack. It was a 17 year old messenger named James Saul. He was commended for commandeering a car and transporting 30 people to nearby hospitals. And then, of course, the police commandeered other vehicles, and they also transported the wounded as well. Interestingly enough, soldiers were called in from Governor's Island. They were tasked with guarding the scene and to search for evidence, assist with the remaining injured, but then also to guard the sub-treasury building. Uh, Governor's Island was the home of the U.S. First Army headquarters at the time. That's convenient. Yep, very convenient. They're, they're They're very close by. But then what I was reading, too, what's funny even though it's like they're guarding the scene and searching for evidence, their main task was to guard the sub treasury building. And that kind of comes into play here in a second as well. Somebody knew where that was. 
So the indiscriminate nature of the attack and the lack of specific targets and the superficial damage of the nearby buildings, you know, at least initially, the investigators kind of waved off foul play. They, they speculated a car full of dynamite being transported from one business to another was to blame. And that was actually, you know, pretty short lived. They spoke with many businesses in the area and found none were moving dangerous materials. So then they were kind of back to the drawing board. And I, I actually read a source where they said almost initially they thought, oh, maybe there was a, a, a cart moving dynamite and it hit a, hit a rock or hit a bump and it caused everything to explode. Well, that was one of the early speculations of what happened um, with that explosion. But of course, that wasn't the case. So a hundred pounds of dynamite sitting in the back of a carriage just randomly explodes and they think, oh, it could have been an accident. At least initially, I think what happened was they're like, okay, who was the, they couldn't figure out a target. It didn't seem like anything was intentionally damaged or destroyed. And it kind of just seemed like it, an explosion happened by accident. So I think they thought, and one of the sources literally said they thought a business was hauling dynamite, which is hilarious to think like back then. Imagine now like a horse drawn wagon pulling dynamite through downtown New York. Like (laughs) that would not happen. I feel like now, but back then, like the, the regulations and things weren't necessarily as intense. So maybe, maybe, I don't know, but it was also, it was quickly kind of okay that they realized quickly that wasn't the case. Yeah. I mean, that, that I feel like that should have definitely been drawn off the board real quick. Cause uh, I mean, you think that we would have safer policies back then a hundred pounds of dynamite being transported through an area full of these, you know, big buildings. I mean, there were still big buildings in New York at this time. It's not like it was, you know, before all these big buildings were built, there was buildings there and with so many people. Yeah, I mean, it was it was 1920. So it was, you know, right at the beginning of the booming 20s. So there was a lot, a lot going on downtown. Yeah. But no, I mean, it was 1920. Also, in the other breath, it was 1920. So maybe there was, I mean, we don't have the same regulations. So the Board of Governors of the New York Stock Exchange were quick to decide that business was to continue as usual the following day. And so cleanup happened pretty quickly. Many elements of the scene, which today would have been preserved were pretty compromised and it kind of hampered the investigation. So there was a rush to get things moving again. And the next day curtains could be seen hanging over broken windows and workers with bandages going along with business as usual. (laughs) Man, Chris, did you see that bomb yesterday? Well, man, I'm missing an arm. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally they're bandaged up and they're, they're back to work, which isn't, I mean, it's, it's the New York Stock Exchange. Not, I'm not shocked. Um, so in the rush to get things back to normal, the scene had been trampled and wiped clean, leaving investigators with very little to go by. So the following day on September 17th, the group, the Sons of the American Revolution, an organization consisting of descendants of soldiers who fought in the revolution, held their patriotic rally in defiance of the previous day's attack. The original intent of the rally was to celebrate Constitution Day at the intersection of Wall Street and Broad Street. But the rally held much more meaning following the previous day's attack. Thousands of people showed up to march through the intersection. This unfortunately played a role, however minor, in the destruction of evidence. Oh, wow. So, can you imagine if that was, like, real lifetime now? Like, I mean, that place would be blocked off like none other for a few days. Everything would be canceled, for sure. Unlike other attacks, nobody claimed responsibility, and after eliminating local businesses that could have been moving dangerous materials, the investigators soon realized they were dealing with something far more sinister than an attack. And this is where the investigation starts to really begin to take shape. Um, It's said that the investigators went to every window sash dealership across the U.S. hoping to find some piece of evidence linking someone to the attack, but nothing was found. 500 pounds. It was 500 pounds of these iron sashes, right? Yeah, 500 pounds of iron sash weights. And they went to all the dealerships and they they found nothing linking anybody to anything. That's a pretty tall order to just not be known where it came from. Yeah, now that you say that, and I didn't really think about it as I was like looking into everything. But yeah, you're right. 500 pounds of iron sash weights. You would assume that Somebody would be like, oh, yeah, I had a big order of iron sash weights or they just over time collected these things. But, yeah, that's kind of a lot to 
just randomly be like, oh, yeah, this guy was in here the other day, ordered 500 pounds of this. You know what I mean? That is kind of a weird thing. Which is kind of even scary to think about if it was something that was over time thought about. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just makes you think even more how planned out it was. It's a crazy thought. So the BOI went into several hundred blacksmiths also in and around New York City with the shoed hooves of the horse that pulled the cart. And the only lead was a statement from an Elizabeth Street blacksmith named Dominic de Grazia, stating he had recently changed shoes for a Sicilian driver. Interesting. So it was bummers from out of town. <laughs> well, I think it's more that he could be linked to like Italian anarchist as a Sicilian. Oh, okay. But yes, he, he probably was from out of town. <laughs> he probably was from out of town. <laughs> I saw Sicilian and realized, oh, that's not American. Yeah, you're thinking of um, what's that movie with uh, Wesley? And he's like, as you wish. Princess Bride. Oh, I was thinking when you said Wesley, I was thinking Princess Bride, but I don't remember that. He's like, never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> so what you're saying is it could have been Wesley from Princess Bride. No, it could have been the Sicilian from Princess Bride. It's not either of those, but let's get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> so the earliest motive to be waved off by the BOI was the assassination attempt of J.P. Morgan Jr. So it was originally floated as a motive for the attack because of the proximity to the building and also because many of those injured or killed were tied in some way to J.P. Morgan. But once investigators heard that J.P. Morgan Jr. was out of the country vacationing in Scotland, they were quick to conclude this wasn't a lead worth following and most sources don't even include this motive in their write-ups. With the unearthing of early information on the attack on Wall Street, the BOI soon turned their eyes to Edwin P. Fisher. Fisher had four Grand Slam titles in mixed doubles tennis and was a three-time finalist of the Canadian Championships. At his height, he was ranked number five in singles in the U.S. Aside from his tennis career, Fisher also practiced law. You know, at, at what point no one can be sure when the tennis-playing lawyer began receiving psychic tips of a disaster? But his brother-in-law had reported that he had been publicly showing his psychic powers for several years. These psychic powers landed him in sanitariums at least twice before the incident. Why in the world would he get put up in a sanitarium just because he... I mean, normally these days, if somebody's crazy, somebody's crazy, you just ignore it. So he must have been doing something like... I mean, I guess they, unless they were just thinking that they could fix him. I think back then, if someone was acting crazy, they just ended up in a sanitarium. Nowadays, it takes a lot more. Shock therapy. <laughs> yeah, probably. But he had warned several people of the public, as well as friends, to stay away from Wall Street prior to September 16th. He was predicting disaster. So the police actually caught up to him in Ontario, who's 44 years old. And on their return to New York, they found that he was wearing two suits. And under his two suits, he had on a tennis outfit. So to quote, be ready for tennis matches at all times. He had three layers of clothing on. Yeah, two suits for warmth and then a tennis outfit just to be ready for tennis matches. Which is, I mean... Can you imagine what he looked like? I think that just goes to show the kookiness of this guy. Shock therapy didn't work. Yeah, which is interesting because... So they questioned Fisher about his... He, he knew with detail and precision the outcome of the day of Wall Street, the bombing on Wall Street, before... It even happened. And he basically claimed that he knew it. And I quote, through the air from God, learned this information. So Dr. Walter F. Prince from the American Institute of Scientific Research, he told reporters that it was possible he was receiving tips psychically in the frequency of these predictions, his past history of frequent visits to the sanitariums, the psych wards, and all his odd demeanor. The investigators released him to the Amityville Asylum with a diagnosis of insane, but harmless. Wow. That's oh, that's a little suspicious, in my opinion. Very suspicious. I mean, he knew he knew quite a bit, and you know, by the 1920s, the spiritualist movement had lost much of its credibility, and and men such as Fisher, however convincing his knowledge was, they weren't taken too credibly. Um, and I am actually a bit surprised that there wasn't more time spent with Fisher, because he did have precise knowledge of an explosion happening on Wall Street before it happened. I mean, you can wave off the psychic aspect of it, but what if that was just a cover to hide his knowledge of the attack or the attackers? I think it was definitely a coverage. I mean, there's no way. How can you? It... Yeah. I mean, what if it wasn't an attack 
at all. And it, there was another motive. He just got away with it. <laughs> and that's it. There's no more information about Fisher. He's just not a suspect anymore. <laughs> so here's what I think happened. I think the tennis player couldn't make it as a lawyer. So he helps these guys blow up the building and then goes and receives shock therapy because he's <laughs> crazy. And now he's wearing three outfits on top of each other and they're like, oh, this guy's just crazy. He's fine. I mean, that's, I, I think he's definitely in on it and I don't think he should just go to an asylum. I think he needs to be in prison. You think, but yeah, that's it. So after Fisher, there's other motives, of course. And so the era in which this took place, I mean, it was a time in which the Old West bank robberies and train robberies were fresh in everyone's minds. But it was 1920. And so it was a little too early for the gangsters and mobsters we read about. You know, Al Capone's name wouldn't even be a household name for a few more years. And the prohibition on alcohol had just gone into effect a few months prior. But another possible motive for the attack was the robbery of the sub-treasury building. Yes, this is what I want to hear about. Yeah, I know. When I saw this, I'm like, oh, it's got to be they're stealing money. So the sub-treasury building was adjacent to the blast. And it just so happened that they were about to be moving $900 million in gold bars that day. Oh my gosh. The building was right next to the assay office where the wagon had been parked. And at noon, just before the explosion went off, treasury workmen had just sealed the side entrance of the building to go to lunch. And that might've sealed the gold and history from what would have been the largest robbery in U.S. history. That's definitely got to be it. $900 million. I mean, what is that in, in money today? I mean, that's... In 2023 dollars, it's $14 billion. So $900 million in 1920 would be worth $14 billion just a little over 100 years later. That's definitely it. Yeah, but the problem is is that they closed the door, they locked it right before the explosion went off. So we, we'll never find out if that was actually the reason because maybe it was a coincidence that they just happened to be moving $900 million worth of gold. <laughs> And they, and they locked the door. Nah, man, that's way too much of a coincidence. Way too much of a coincidence. $14 billion just happened to be moving that day, and they just happened to shut the door in time. Nah, that was that was the goal. That $14 billion is sitting there, and they almost had it. Yeah, I know. But that alone, plus the fact that the federal government sent troops to stand guard at the building, I mean, it shows how serious the motive was taken. But... No gold was stolen and no attempt at gaining entry to the building ever happened. So investigators basically said, well, let's just drop it because there's nothing pointing to that. It's just a coincidence that $900 million worth of gold was to be moved that day and it didn't get, didn't get touched. Man, I should have been there in the 1920s. <laughs> you could have, could have slipped in and slipped out with some gold. So the, the next little bit of motives that I have put here. I think this is where we get a little bit more serious into real motives. So the, you know, the public had been stirring since the end of the first world war and the attack appeared to be from radical groups opposed to capitalism. The investigation soon began pointing fingers at the anti-capitalists. So I've kind of come together the motives um, here, not because they happened in this order, but because most of the motives discussed throughout this podcast happened simultaneously with some wrapping kind of quickly and others dragging on. These motives, however, are a little bit more structured, and they all touch on radical groups. So moving forward, we're going to talk about and discuss the organized groups that may have been behind the attack. First, I want to talk about William Dudley Haywood. So Big Bill Haywood. At the time of the attack, he was the head of the organization, the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW. He was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the time when Utah was still a territory of the U.S., and Big Bill was an industrial unionist. And as such, he held the philosophy that all industrial workers, regardless of the skill, should belong to the same union. His personal philosophy was direct action. You know, he's, he often supported violence as a means to an end. He was actually jailed in 1918 during the first Red Scare and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. On approval of then-sitting President Woodrow Wilson under the Espionage Act of 1917, Big Bill, along with 164 IWW members, were arrested. Although he was arrested in 1918, he was out of prison, appealing his conviction during the attack on Wall Street. Uh, the Bolsheviks promised prosperity and an end to the war with Germany, 
So the slogan, peace, land, and bread was the decree of the Soviets. And the October Revolution kicked off an armed insurrection by the Bolshevik workers and soldiers. As a precaution to all of this, uh, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer had Big Bill arrested and held him on speculation that the Bolshevik anarchists were behind the attack. So, I mean, historically speaking, the Russian Civil War was on and Vladimir Lenin, the founder of the Bolsheviks, would take his place as the head of the government of the so of Soviet Russia. The Times reported, authorities were agreed that the devastating blast signaled a long-threatened red outrages. Although the Red Scare was real and fears of communism were spreading, Big Bill was released without any proof of a connection to the attacks on Wall Street. And following an unsuccessful appeal of his conviction, he fled to the Soviet Union. And believe it or not, today, Big Bill Haywood, along with two other Americans, are buried at the Kremlin Wall Necropolis alongside the Leninist Joseph Stalin. Oh, wow. I'm glad he left town. Yeah. He, speaking of being from out of town, he he left and went way out of town. <laughs> he didn't belong here. No. He's buried with Joseph Stalin. <laughs> so the end of World War One brought a lopsided amount of money to the Americans. A war across the Atlantic left a continent scarred and reeling. Military deaths for the American reached just over 100,000, but much of the country was left untouched by war. Unlike Europe, most of the deaths and destruction happened outside of its borders, and the financial burden left on the Europeans would line many American pockets. The booming 20s was right around the corner, and many anti-capitalists were driven to destroy the biggest symbol of American capitalism, Wall Street. Oh, wow. So there's motive. Motive, yeah. I mean, we've had multiple motives up, up to this point, but yeah, anti-capitalism is the next one. I mean, I feel like that it's the biggest motive, though, when it comes to, like, you know, people fight for a reason. You know, money, don't get me wrong, $14 billion sitting there. That's, that's a huge motive. But when people want to stand for something, I mean, it becomes even, I think that's stronger than the motive of money. Yeah, and most historians point to um, the anti-capitalist sentiment as something important. So anti-capitalism, it seemed to be the driving factor behind the bombing of Wall Street. But the sentiment was held by many groups. So there's a guy, Luigi Gallini, an immigrant of Italy. Um, Gallini was an insurrectionist anarchist and as such was exiled to the island of Pantelleria. So here, here's what's going to happen here in a minute, Jason. I'm about to go through a bunch of Italian names and things, and I'm going to be kidding these wrong. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce these, but who knows what, what, what we're going to get. But all that said, he was exiled to the island of Pantelleria. And that was for his work as the Piedmont labor movement. So Piedmont is a region in northwest Italy, which borders the regions of Ligeria, Lombardy, and Emilia Romana. Oh, dang, that was really well done. I would have done a lot worse on those ones. Ligeria sounds like a pasta. Linguini. <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> In 1901, Galini reached Patterson, New Jersey, where he quickly became involved with the Italian immigrant workers' movement. And after moving from Jersey to Massachusetts and Vermont, he started a newspaper called Cronaca Servisiva. I can't even say this. Cronaca Servisiva. His radical views and his vocal opposition to World War I saw his deportation back to Italy, where he died in 1931 under fascist political repression. Although he died in 1931, the followers of Galini, the Gallinist, were responsible for many bombings between 1914 and 1932. So there was a suitcase bomb that killed 10 during the Preparedness Day Parade in San Francisco. Another 10 were killed in a Milwaukee police station from a black powder bomb. And then later, 36 bombs were mailed to high-profile people, including the Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. So you might remember him as the guy who locked up Big Bill Haywood on suspicion of the attack. Huh, it sounds like there was two people going in on it. With... It sounds like revenge. Yeah, possibly. Well, part, I mean, they're all after this guy because he was locking everybody up. But So after a failed attempt to kill Palmer with explosive devices into the mail, there was another attempt on his life, but this one was also unsuccessful. Palmer recalled later hearing a thud at the front door, followed by an explosion that rocked the home. The editor of Galini's newspaper lay dead at the bottom of the steps of Palmer's house. 
presumably he he tripped going up the stairs and <laughs> fell in the bomb and it went off. Oh man, um, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, it's so terrible. Not a great assassin, but it, <laughs> you know it happens. I mean, he was a he was a newspaper editor. So what what can you do? So why not the Gallinist? I mean, they were responsible for so many other attacks at the time. And what about the anarchist letters found the days leading up to the attack? They read, remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you, American anarchist fighters. So prior to the attack on Wall Street, Italian anarchist Nicolai Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were arrested and held on charges of murder. Just a few months later, the attack took place. And the following years, a circus of trial ensued with the pair. And with conflicting evidence, recanted testimony, and apparent prejudice of the jury, they were sentenced to death. Many believed this was due to anti-Italianism and anti-immigration that was rampant at the time. Wow, so Italians were hated at this time. I think everyone was hated at this time, but they definitely were not (laughs) fans of the Italians. So protests were were held and high-profile men such as the future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter and even the dictator Benito Mussolini were outspoken about their innocence. The case made its way to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts where the verdict was upheld and later a three-man commission appointed by the governor investigated further and decided their fate. And so the men were executed in 1927. So the Gallinists would go on to wreak havoc with bombings and assassination attempts, with a final attack occurring on the judge that oversaw the trial of Vanzetti and Sacco. So many fingers have since been pointed at an associate of Vanzetti and Sacco, an Italian anarchist, Mario Buda. So Mario Buda was an Italian immigrant from the Romana region. His name will not be found in documents of the original federal investigation that took place after the attack, but historians today point to Buddha as the most likely culprit. So uh, this is kind of odd. You know, you say that we can't find him um, on the original investigation, but yet all the historians are saying that it was probably him. Yeah. Like, how is the government like completely missing this? I mean, I know the hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I just find that kind of odd. They just didn't investigate this guy. They didn't know about it. I mean, they were looking at the anarchists. They were looking at uh, Big Bill Haywood. But the original investigation doesn't have this guy, Buddha. But all the historians looking back, they all point to Buddha as the prime, the prime suspect, which is crazy. So it's believed that Buddha was the prime instigator of the Milwaukee police station bombing and the bombs sent through the mail addressed to high profile people. And so with his connection to both Sacco and Vanzetti, it reaches as deep as his possible responsibility for their arrest. His car was the main piece of evidence that linked the pair to the Boston robbery where the murder took place. So historians today believe he's most likely the man behind the bombing. And basically in retaliation of the arrest of his partners. So Buddha was never questioned and he slipped away back to Italy just weeks after the explosion. The biggest link being the anarchist letters demanding the release of political prisoners and his connection to other Italian anarchist attacks. So with Buddha back in Italy and the BOI following other leads, you know, where else can we really look for a responsible party? So this is crazy. You know, you, you arrest two people and this guy decides to go and kill 40 others and injure 300 others just because his two partners get arrested. Yeah. I mean, this guy sounds more psychotic than the, the psychic tennis player. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about the psychic tennis player. He's kind of just off in La La Land. Maybe he was actually getting information from God. But yeah, this guy is definitely a character that was involved in other bombings and had a motive. But no one ever looked at him and he just kind of slipped away. <laughs> so the BOI had trouble linking the attack to any one person. Uh or group, or even motive. Due to the indiscriminate nature, the lack of targets, and the lack of any groups taking responsibility. They also had very little evidence to go by. You know, the blacksmith did recall a Sicilian driver bringing in a horse to be reshoed just days before the attack. But with how the investigation was handled, who's to say that was even the same horse? 
After all, anti-Italian sentiment was at an all-time high. I mean, it's extremely possible that Buddha was the Sicilian driver, but who knows? So the case runs cold after just a few years um, with the death of the 29th president, Warren G. Harding, in 1923. But before then, the administration also pointed fingers at the Communist Party USA. The U.S. government was sure they were under attack from external movement to, to establish communism or socialism. And after all, they just seen the end of a European monarchy that was overthrown by a subsect of Marxist and Leninist. And they were currently watching the rise of totalitarian fascism take shape in Italy. So it sounds like they're just kind of trying to find someone to put blame on. This is kind of like, I feel like sometimes what the government does is they'll, they'll like go back and point fingers at something to like get the rest of the country to go with them. I think there's just a lot going on at this period in time and there's just too many things to kind of hone in on. Plus with how they handled the crime scene afterwards, I, I think that just, they just didn't have a whole lot of leads and no one, I mean, back then when there was a terrorist attack, people were like, oh, I did it. They would claim that they did it, but they didn't have that. So I think it just made it really tough. Yeah. It sounds like it was like really, really a lot of irresponsibility going on how the crime scene was taken care of. Well, also, I mean, President William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist in 1901, you know, 19 years prior to this. And so the the Red Scare was was real and a definitive answer was was never reached. So, I mean, when it comes to anarchy, I mean, an anarchist actually killed the sitting president in 1901. Then you had World War One happen. You had the rise of power of all these different with fascism in Italy and communism and and the Soviet Union or Russia at the time. So there was a lot of things happening, and I think the U.S. was just freaked out. Yeah, there's no doubt, especially just coming out of um, World War. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot, a lot going on. But, you know, following the failed investigation, so the FBI opened, they reopened the case in 1944. Um, the cold case that was the bombing of Wall Street was looked at with, with new eyes and by a new organization, the FBI. So the FBI did not conclusively determine any one organization or any one man. And they officially leaned towards Italian anarchists, but they themselves still labeled the case as unsolved. Looking back through history, I mean, more than 100 years after the attack, historians today continue to speculate that Buddha was behind the attack on Wall Street. Uh, historians point to fellow anarchist Frank Maffi, Buddha's cousin, and then also Charles Poggi, who claimed to have confirmed his involvement. Uh, from an interview with Buddha in 1955, but the case remains unsolved. Okay, so next I'm going to basically speculate because that's all the information that I have. I mean, after spending all this time reading through sources, including government organizations, college papers, commercial entertainment, I mean, I watched videos on PBS and the History Channel. I believe we're looking at the work of the Italian anarchists. Uh, the article Blood and Fire by Nathan Ward on Crime Reads it goes much more in detail about the Gallinists, their bombing campaigns and terror attacks, uh, the, all the stuff that they unleashed during the 1920s. And he paints a really convincing argument and details around the Italian anarchists. Yes. Um, so I, I, I definitely think um, I'm going to put my money on the psychic tennis player, though. Because, I mean, you can't make it as a lawyer. You might as well just bomb the banks, you know? And, you know, there's $14 billion there. If he was psychic enough, he could have probably known from God that there was $14 billion sitting in that, <laughs> that door over there, behind that door. Of course, if he knew this was from God, he probably would have been there at that time and taken the money. I love the idea that Edwin Fisher was was getting this information psychically. Um, it, it reminds me of like John Klein and the Mothman prophecies. But at the end of the day, it... it, it I, I mean, I think Edward Fisher was just maybe getting information. He was hearing rumbles of things and just was just outspoken. Maybe he was hearing things from other people. And I mean, I think it's pretty easy at the time when you have all this stuff going on and anarchy and explosions and bombs and things. Maybe he was just hearing he heard of something and started talking to people like he had an inside scoop. Um, but I mean, maybe maybe God was talking to him. I don't know. I think if God was talking to him, God would have told him where that money was at, at the same time to help him out. Sounds like he might have had some money problems. I don't know if God would have been focused on the cash or if he would have been more focused on like other things. Yeah. So I also think that if this is like the 
you know, if it's not the psychic tennis player, like I said, I honestly believe that murders like this, murdering 40 people, is more of a motive from, you know, I feel like you have to have, like, real political motive. I feel like that's what really motivates people at the end of the day. I don't don't think it was the money to, like, I mean, because be able to say, yeah, I'm going to murder 40 people, you know, no amount of money is worth that much. I think this was all by all means a, a political came from a political standpoint. There has to be, yeah, there has to be a motive. And I think a lot of that comes back to the Italian anarchist or just anarchist in general. I, I mean, I, I also kind of lead towards Buddha just based on everything that I read. I know I, I consolidated everything for you guys here and for you, Jason here, but I also, I mean, I lean towards, I think Buddha and the Italian anarchists, the flyers are interesting to me. I think that they, the fact that all these flyers were dispersed kind of nearby, I, I'm leaning towards Buddha and the Italian anarchists. But man, I can't imagine. Can you imagine interviewing a guy and like all of a sudden realizing he's wearing two suits and he's got a tennis outfit on beneath that? Like, <laughs> how wild. <laughs> I feel like that just proves itself that it's not him. Like, if he's not, I mean, the guy's off his rocker, don't get me wrong, yeah. but... I mean, they said it themselves. He, he's insane. He's but he's harmless. Yeah, and I'm looking at these photos and these photos. I mean, it's pretty crazy. You can see one of the photos of um, where the rods hit the wall and like the chips in the wall. I would love to see this in person. Yeah, those pop marks are crazy. There's one. I I don't know if you're looking at that one specifically. I one I saw where a guy's holding his hand up to it, and the pop mark is about the size of his hand. That's exactly the one. Yeah, that's exactly the one I was looking at. But, you know, I mean, with all that said, I mean, I really enjoyed researching this little forgotten event that took place over 100 years ago. This wasn't something that I was even aware of. When I was looking to cover and unsolve the mystery, I came across this and I'm like, how has this not been talked about more? And this was something I wanted to put together. So thanks again for listening to The Anecdotalist. That sounded good. It did sound good.